This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their online initiative, primesoil.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my pal, Andy Richter, and we have got a great show for you today. Sorry, who is Andy Richter? Uh, Conan O'Brien's sidekick. I thought you. I thought I was gonna. Uh, what I was doing was uh, making a. I was gonna. I thought I was gonna re- uh, rile you up by implying that you might be on this show, the sidekick, and I thought that would really, really. Oh, rile is, you up. is Andy Richter sort of Ed McMahon these days? Well, Ed Ed McMahon was off of television. The only thing Ed McMahon did on television in the entirety of our lifetime was give out checks to people. So did he? I don't. I only know Ed McMahon as a sort of reasonable for you to ask it what who the new Ed McMahon is. Andy Richter uh, is Andy Richter man. himself. That was a ninety. I was basically making a nineties television reference. Now, I yeah. granted, you spent the whole of the nineties living in England, and I know they yes. don't have American culture there. Whatever, whatever. But um, just think of him as the Judy, right? If I'm the Punch, you're he, Andy Richter's the Judy, maybe. But no, Ju- Punch and Judy are co-equals. You can't have one without the other. Oh, okay. Well. But you're the, you're seem to be suggesting Andy Richter's the guy you pay to sit at the end of your couch and laugh at your jokes. Yeah, that's Andy Richter. That's his whole I see. Um no, you here's the thing. You say that it's it's ridiculous of me to have Ed McMahon as a reference point for second yeah, banana. Because, do you need but a word that's original right now? Like how old are you? <laughs> no, no. Let me explain. Let me explain. Please do. Do you know how I know who Ed McMahon is? Because you're right. I didn't live in the United States during the nineties. I I certainly never watched I, uh, was it Johnny Carson that Ed McMahon was second banana uh, yeah, to? I, I, I think. I think. I don't know. I only know this because it was a line in a film that I quite liked that I saw once. And I didn't know, I didn't understand the reference. And so I had to ask about it. And then I was told, no, Ed McMahon is, you know, everyone's second banana. It's That's the idea. Is he's the what was the film? He's the lesser. Uh, it was either Stakeout or Another Stakeout. I can't remember which. Okay, I've never heard of those movies. Uh, well, they're 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 of their genre. I would say very typical. It's um, oh, what's his name? Uh, I mean, it's Emilio Estevez, and it's they're buddy cop films. It's Emilio Estevez and oh, okay, uh, what's his name? Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus. You know what I liked uh, as buddy comedies? Um, Rush Hour. Because that Chris Tucker, that Chris Tucker is funny. I I know who Chris Tucker is. And I agree, he's funny. I have not seen Rush Hour. Oh, see, I would think you would like it because it takes place on the last day of British rule in Hong Kong. That's a compelling storyline for me. I'll look. Yes, at- I'm eating Halloween candy right now. Are you eating Halloween candy right now? No, I I have eaten a lot of Halloween candy in the last few days, mm-hmm. um, which is going to get expensive if this keeps up. Expensive? Is- well, yeah, I'm gonna. I mean, I going to have to get all of my trousers resized. Okay. I was going to say, my, it would be really something if you, I mean, the guy who goes on November 4th or 5th back to the grocery store to buy another, you know, bag of 80 pieces of mini um, Kit Kats or whatever, that's that's uh, when you've passed done the point, that. You know? I, I've done that in previous years. That when the no, bowl, yeah, no, I have. When the bowl is empty, I've, I've been in, I didn't go to the grocery store, but I went to, I was in Walgreens and I saw that, you know, all the Halloween big bags on discount because it's first week of November, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to do that. And, um, you know, you get the, cause the thing is you kid yourself, you kid yourself that the little bite sized, fun sized, whatever's who decided that small equals fun for nomenclature. That doesn't make any sense. Small is worse. There's nothing in more is more and never is more, more 
more true than when dealing with chocolate. But this is beside the point. But no, I had a period um, for a while there. I think it was probably pandemic time. The two were probably mm-hmm. related. Where mm-hmm. I had at any point two or as many as four of those big bags of fun size whatever's Halloween giveaway size bags in my freezer. Wow. And it would be after dinner, after work, you know, last hour of the day. I could get through a lot. It got so bad that um, people in our house would make fun of my of the waste paper basket in my office, which would just be filled with candy wrappers. Yeah, understandably. No, it's not good. It's not good, JD. It's not good. So, so what? What? What, what was your? Um, what was your Halloween costume, and um, how was your trick or treating? Uh, well, we covered costume last week. I thought maybe it was. Oh, only that's right, we did. I but yeah, I, no, I wore my pillar western shirt with the skull on it, and you know, mm-hmm. I think that was received in the spirit in which it was intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the trick or treating went very well. The child enjoyed it. Uh, she doesn't like candy. Yeah, um, we can't get her to eat it. She doesn't that's want weird. it. Weird. Yeah, she she's big into fruit. I go figure. Um, hmm. But she she quickly decided that the purpose of trick or treating was you go door to door, someone comes out, tells you how beautiful you look, and then oh, you go that's to the next. Adorable. So she and she would say thank you or, or her approximation thereof. So it became just sort of you know my daughter's affirmation tour around the neighborhood, just going door to door with everyone telling her she's beautiful, and she would say thank you, and then you know sprint to the next house and look at me, and they say, oh you look so pretty, I know, and then next house and um. I don't know that it was linked in her mind to dressing up or that this was a particular day. I think she just kind of feels like we're finally doing the walking thing the way it was always meant to be done, which is everyone should door to door come out and pay homage to her. No, it was nice. That's adorable. She takes a good photo, my kid. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. How about you? How did did the tricks and treatings go? (sighs) The tricks and the... Fine. Uh, we went actually really fun. We went to uh, it was really fun. We went to a friend's uh, house. Um, he's newly appointed the pastor of a parish, and he's got a great rectory. I think he's probably a listener to the show. And he cooked a really good dinner. We, my sister's family, went, and our family went, and he cooked a great dinner. And then he lives in a, and we ate the dinner, and then we trick or treated around his neighborhood for a while. He lives in a great neighborhood for trick or treating because it's um. It's one of these neighborhoods in sort of old Denver that has uh, probably over the past couple of decades, just a lot of places have been, the the tops have been popped. And so a lot of sort of old Denver squares have become bigger houses or some of them were scraped. And so there are newer houses there, but it's kind of got an old, um, old Denver neighborhood feel, but a lot of cool houses and they were decorated for Halloween and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. uh, it was fun. And uh, then we went back to the rectory and kind of had an eating our candy party and we had to pay a had to pay a church tax um to i suppose it was really a benefice really to father pastor mm-hmm. and uh then father sort of levitical vicar, tithe. what's that a sort of levitical tithe right exactly then father parochial vicar came home he had been at something else and he seemed to think uh that that a parochial vicar would be entitled to <laughs> Well, which was That's adorable. Adorable. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was really sweet. So, uh, but we made sure he got some got some candy. So that was he uh, could lick was, the wrappers uh, after you were. <laughs> but, you know, Halloween is tricky. I don't. I don't know if you, you you aren't yet experiencing this, but you will. Halloween is tricky um, because it, it lasts and lasts and lasts. Um, 
into the night. And then the next day, like for us, like at, at our school, and I suspected a lot of Catholic schools, the next day, All Saints Day is a big and important day. Like it's a major celebration at the school. And so your kids kind of go to bed late and all sugared up. And then the next morning they have to get up and put on their All Saints costumes. And then the whole, it's a whole day of feasting, mass and feasting mm-hmm. at the school. So, you know, it was a little bit of a whirlwind. Two of my kids won um, the prize for best costume in their grade at All Saints Day, which was cool. Oh, nice. uh, Yeah. Did they go with something pleasant or something grisly? I'm aware that it's a thing where um, some some children in Catholic families will combine the observance of All Hallows' Eve and All Saints Day by going as a martyred saint in the in the condition of their martyrdom. There are a lot of rules at our school. I think that's not allowed. One thing that happened this year that I was not surprised by, but that (laughs) spoke to perhaps I don't know. I I I wasn't crazy about. I didn't like it. But Carlo Acutis was banned from All Saints Day because the on what grounds the the principal felt that, as I understood, and I only heard this sort of around the water cooler, mostly from moms, but the principal felt that, you know, kids in Carlo Acuda's costumes would basically be looking for a justification for wearing, um, you know, jeans to school. And, uh, and so it'd be more of a skirting the uniform policy than a really sort of accurately donning a saint costume. So I wasn't crazy about that. I must admit, I I try not to. First of all, Carlo Acutis um, is most famously depicted in a tracksuit, not denim trousers. I I understand that. This is just what I heard. So this principle is both ignorant and a killjoy. There are also, now be careful because I try very hard not to talk about, you know, as you do, like the people in my real life on the show. I I know, but this isn't a real person in my real life, so it doesn't bother me even slightly. (laughs) But, um, what, you can apologize to them for my bad behavior later. What I thought about it, what what I found interesting about it is that if Carlo Acutis were not banned, there are all these photographs of Carlo Acutis in a Spider-Man Halloween costume. So oh, that would be even better. On All Saints Day, if they were even, had even a modicum of cleverness, just wear a Spider-Man costume and go as Carlo Acutis that as Spider-Man. That is great. That, that's but that was prohibited at our school. That was also prohibited. Yeah. The, the Spider-Man Carlo Acutis costume? No, Carlo Acutis on the whole was prohibited. So obviously, you know, if... Uh, if um, if A, if all of A is prohibited, A prime will also be prohibited. I that's sad. And if those are, if that is true, and again, it's unconfirmed, you are in fact just giving tongue to rumor at this point. But leaving that aside, if that is true, that is sad. Um, and it's also for an even sadder reason. Like if kids, if kids are smart enough to say, "I'm dressing as Carlo Acutis because it means I can wear a rugby shirt and jeans to school, or a tracksuit." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or a Spider-Man costume. That's great lateral thinking and great knowledge of the life of a venerable. Um, yeah. I, I'm impressed. That's good Catholic. Triv knowledge should be rewarded, should be encouraged. We should be encouraging young people to develop a, a an interest in and a devotion to Carlo Acutis, who is, of course, you know, timely in history and example for kids growing up in the digital age. I think that's a lovely thing. So that's still, I mean, I thought you were going to say the principal had moved to ban Carlo Acutis outfits because just way too many American Catholic moms love Carlo Acutis right now. And so the whole school would have just been kids in red shirts and like, we want a little fun here. So you can't all come as Carlo Acutis. So we're just doing a blanket ban. Like that would have been sad, but understandable. Yeah. But no, just Uh, too much fun. No, that's sad. That's the way it happened. Okay, Ed, we uh, have a lot of things to talk about because some really big things have happened. Um, some really big things have happened this week in the life of the church, and one of which I actually think is more, I actually think is more significant. Um, if I'm being honest, I actually think is 
is more significant than the synod on synodality in a certain way. It, it is. It is almost um, everything is more significant than the <laughs> synod on synodality in my mind. But please say more. It has gone largely unappreciated, and we actually have not. We've tried to do a little bit of reporting on it, but we have not yet, or a fair amount of reporting on it, but we've not yet been able to because we haven't been able to get the sources to speak to us who we want to speak to us. But Ed, did you read the motu proprio that came out? Uh, earlier this week from Pope Francis on uh, sort of um, promulgating new statutes for the Pontifical Academy for Theology, this um, uh, ad theologium provandum. I am really embarrassed to say, and I had to confess this to, a, not sacramentally confess, um, but um, in the more colloquial sense, confess to a priest friend of, of mine of ours, in fact, last night when he texted me, so what do I, what do you make of this? And I said, I, I didn't even know what had happened. Um, and that's on me. I spent you know, peeking behind the curtain a little bit, we had some, we had some technical issues here at the pillar we had this week, serious which technical issues we don't need to go pillar, into, but suffice to say it swallowed my entire Wednesday. Uh, yeah. And and around that, I have been trying very, very hard to turn five hours of tape, one three-hour interview and two one-hour phone calls um, into a coherent narrative and interview, which I hope will be ready for publication next week and yeah. not getting as far as fast with that as I would like. So I didn't even know this had happened. So I know nothing about it other than a couple of people have asked me what I think about it. And what I think about it is I missed it and I'm sad about that. So if you want to talk about that, that's great. Please consider me, um, you know, virgin snow upon which you can imprint your impressions and I will take them deeply. It has been treated as being pretty significant because it is a set of reflections on the nature and mission of theology from the Roman pontiff. On the other hand, what it is, is it's a motu proprio promulgating new uh, statutes for the Pontifical Academy for Theology. Now, Ed, I know that you knew there was a Pontifical Academy for Theology because we had tried to pursue some stories about it actually several months ago. Yes, I was begging them for for a comment or even an acknowledgement at one point in the spring. On on the story that we ended up not being able to bring to publication. Um, So I knew you knew that there was a Pontifical Academy for Theology, but before that story kind of landed on our radar a couple of months ago, had you known there was a Pontifical Academy for Theology? I had no idea. I didn't know what the words meant. So and and so the point is, it is both important because it is a reflection on theology from the Roman Pontiff, um, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, uh, the servant of the servants of God, and on the other hand, it, it comes in the context of some notes or reflections on theology to promulgate new statutes for this effectively pontifical think tank of limited influence in the life of the church and certainly in the world of academic theology. So do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Uh, These reflections, are they in a sort of preamble? Are they within the text of the statutes themselves? No, they are. So what happened is the Pope on, on, uh, I want to say Wednesday, promulgated, and again, I I feel frustrated that we have not been able to get sort of land reporting on this, but it's been, but but it it just is what it is. But but anyway, we're talking about it now. Uh, I, I, on, I want to say Wednesday, the Pope um, promulgated new statutes for the Pontifical Academy for Theology and in the con- and, and said, in short, that the Pontifical Academy for Theology needed to have a new sort of focal point, focus, or approach, which would be um, sort of more uh, interdisciplinary or, or you know, tr- even transdisciplinary with um, such that the, the that that the Pontifical Academy for Theology would aim to put theologians in dialogue with so- social scientists and hard scientists and philosophers and so humanities looking people for, and 
in cross-disciplinary interconnectivity. Yes, exactly. And and so um, so in the context of that, the motu proprio did some was some reflections on theology from Pope Francis um, that effectively called for. Uh, a new uh, what, what the Pope called a paradigm shift. Um, oh, I hate it when people call for paradigm shifts. It never follows with anything good. Well, hold on to your britches okay. because we have to get through a conversation about this without venting our spleens. And no, no, I'm, no, no. Give I, you a... I, I'm coming to this totally cold. I'm just saying when I hear the I words know, paradigm hold shift, to I hold on to my armchair, the my the the arms of my chair. But because the Pontiff called for a paradigm shift in theological reflection, he said a turning point, a paradigm shift towards. This is where you need to hold on to your tongue. A courageous cultural revolution, the pontiff says. Uh, a revolution of culture, a courageous cultural revolution, which is a particularly interesting term, of course, because the term cultural revolution is evocative, of course, of... Genocide. Maoism. Okay. Um, but the pontiff uses that phrase because it's a phrase that he uses in Laudato Si' to talk about a sort of cultural revolution towards integral human ecology and all that. But he says, uh, theology must be committed to a fundamentally contextual theology capable of reading and interpreting the gospel in the conditions in which men and women daily live in different geographical, social, and cultural environments and having as its archetype the, in the incarnation of the eternal logos. Um, all of which, you know, we can talk about. But then he says, theology cannot but develop into a culture of dialogue and encounter between different traditions and different knowledge, between different Christian denominations and different religions, openly confronting everyone, believers and non-believers alike. Indeed, the need for dialogue is intrinsic to human beings and to the whole of creation. And it is the particular task of theology to, I realize I'm reading this quickly, but um, you guys can find it on the web. It is the particular task of theology to discover, quote, the Trinitarian imprint that makes the cosmos in which we live a web of relationships. So, um, which is quoting from uh, his Veritatis Gaudium there. So, um, effectively, this has been taken uh, as a call for, you know, not not just taken as a call, but but what the the pontiff says here is, again, he, he talks about something, uh, an approach to theology, which is fundamentally contextual. Um, and, uh, for theologians, the theologians that I have spoken with, that has been, um, uh, a controversial, um, call from the Pope because the, the notion of sort of theology, which is fundamentally contextual to them seems to suggest something which does not sort of begin with, um, divine revelation and then apply it to different things, but, um, to different circumstances, but according to the, the, its objectivity, but instead something in which like this notion of fundamentally contextual theology might be taken as a sort of, um, a sort of a signal of a relativistic theology in which the gospel might have different meanings, fundamentally objective meanings in different, um, geographical, social, and cultural environments. So in other words, a kind of postmodern or relativistic approach uh, to theology is the criticism that some people th say or, or the sense that some people have of what's being said here, especially because the Pope sort of said what we don't want to do, he said is abstractly, he said uh, problematic theology now is abstractly reproposing formulas and schemas from the past and uh, engaging in what he calls desk-bound theology. So um for uh, an in kind of inductive approach to theology. So for a lot of theologians, this has been an extremely controversial um, call from the Pope because it seems to be an endorsement of an approach to pastoral theology that many people have criticized, an endorsement of approach to moral theology that many people have criticized, by which rather than sort of beginning with divine revelation and approaching it to, and then applying divine revelation to particular circumstances, easy circumstances or hard circumstances, one sort of begins with 
the subjective, the, the person, and then kind of tries to extrapolate some moral principles or adapt the gospel to apply to their principles and things like that in a way that many people who have been concerned about this say effectively um, endorses a kind of relativism. Okay. And so that has been, in the past couple of days, controversial. At the same time, there has been some controversy around the idea that Catholic theology, which is, you know, fides quarens intellectum, faith-seeking understanding, sort of is done necessarily in dialogue with other Christian traditions or with other religious traditions because, of course, the perception... theology was done primarily in dialogue with God. Right. That's that's the... That is the criticism that is being made. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, um, um, I, do we know um, if Cardinal Tuco um, played a, I mean, the, the, the a helping hand in writing? The, wor- the working presumption is that this is a that this is a Cardinal Fernand. This is effectively Cardinal Fernandez sort of using this opportunity with the Pontifical Academy for Theology to um, sort of offer his own kind of Magna Carta of. Um, of um of theology, a theology of encounter, as yeah. it were. Yeah. Okay. So um, we talked to one theologian, and again, we're still talking to theologians. That's why we haven't sort of filed a report about this yet. But Luke talked to one theologian who said that this phrase "contextual theology" is very interesting because um, it actually has has its roots in a sort of a Presbyterian, a Taiwanese Presbyterian theologian of the uh, of the twentieth century. Who argued that theology needed to be, rather than theology being seeking to understand um, God and the fullness of God's revelation, sort of that theology's principal argument, you know, task was to address like social concerns or um, individual human concerns in particular contexts. Which again, there are people who say that that sort of lends itself to a kind of relativism. Um, but it's not surprising for it to come from Cardinal Fernandez because it also. Uh, that notion of contextualizing theology runs through kind of the liberation theology movement, in which was uh, which was criticized by Pope Saint John Paul II for effectively um, becoming a sort of a, a, from John Paul II's perspective, becoming um, unduly focused on the temporal with a, with an with a dis, with a with an insufficient awareness of kind of the eternal eternal implications of, of divine revelation. Amongst other things, yes. Amongst other things, yeah. They were also, JP2 was also concerned about the tendency of priests who were proponents of liberation theology to hang out with guys in the jungle who used Kalashnikovs. <laughs> that was also uh, yeah. a problem. Yeah. So here's here's a summary from one theologian we spoke with, and this will be in our reporting next week. So uh, effectively, the Holy Father, according to one theologian, says that theology must take into account contemporary experiences, must be of service to the culture, must develop, must take into account kind of cultural change, must be bottom-up, must be pastoral, must take into account the common sense of people, and must be evangelistic. And this theologian says, yeah, all that could be taken in a positive sense. It could be acknowledged as true. But the problem is, uh, this guy says that there's no mention of theology founded on the traditional interpretation of scripture, the magisterial tradition, the infallible teaching of the council, and, and faithful to Catholic doctrine and moral teaching. Is that there what we're people, to understand by desk-bound theology? Right. I mean, and or this sort of reframing of um, of old formulas and stuff like that. Now, there are certainly people at the same time who praise this and say, those things should be taken as a given because he's the Pope, and so the Pope doesn't have to reiterate fundamental principles all the time. And what he is saying is, um, is true. 
the, you know, that's kind of what the people who praise it say. It, it seems to me that this document sort of reflects the paradigm shift, so to speak, of the of what happened at the John Paul II Institute a couple of years ago. Do you remember, Ed, what happened at the John Paul II Institute in Rome a couple of years ago? Yes. In, in broad strokes, they, they lost a lot of faculty and students. They lost a lot of faculty and students, but here's why. So the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family was effectively a kind of theological, a, a theological institute, a graduate school of theology in Rome. And there's a network of them kind of around the world, but Rome was the one that had the most change. That really was focused on reading sort of John Paul II, hence the name, John Paul II's kind of theology of the body, and then reading the kind of anthropology and scripture and and, and stuff that sort of led to um, an understanding of what John Paul II was doing in his theology of the body. Um, Pope Francis, I want to say now five or six years ago, made the decision that the John Paul II Institute, rather than focusing simply on sort of the theological reflections of John Paul II's theological anthropology and their implications for moral theology, sacramental theology, should instead um, be reframed as an institute in which theology was in dialogue with sociology and psychology. I do remember And that. political philosophy and, polit- and, and political science and these kinds of things. Sort of like a, a place where theology meets the social sciences. And so he reframed it that way and the faculty were dismissed and new faculty were brought on who sort of had that qualifications which he wanted. But the problem is many people said, look, theology can't be in dialogue with those disciplines until we have a firm foundation on theology. It's not that well-formed theologians can't talk with sociologists and learn from learn something, of course, but this is a place to train people in the particular science uh, of theology in order that they might then sort of bring to bear in the life of the world um, the, the fullness of, re- of revelation. And so that, that was the criticism. It's like, well, what, what's, you know, wouldn't it be good to just study this stuff as, as, as such? And so that's the criticism here too, is like, um, from, from some people at least, is like, can't theology be the discipline that it is? Um, and is there a danger that sort of this kind of cross-disciplinary approach to theology lends itself to to, to relativism and to sort of just becoming uh, a kind of baptism of the culture if it's not rooted in divine revelation and sacred script, you know, th- th- through sacred scripture and sacred tradition and the teachings of the magisterium. So it's a big deal, I think, in this, in what it has to say. It's not a big deal in that it doesn't, you know, it's, it's a motu proprio. It's not, um, it's some reflections in the context of a motu proprio, which makes new laws. It's not a kind of um, apostolic constitution or something which you, you're bound to, hold or or believe or something like that. It's effectively what, how the Pope thinks theology should be done, but it points to the way in which the Holy See has been acting in things like this, the, the um, JP2, and then I think the way we could expect the Holy See to act more. So, so the people who said ahead of the Synod, the Synod is going to be used, you, you remember this, there are a lot of people who said ahead of the Synod, the Synod is going to be used to undermine Veritatis Splendor, and we saw a little bit of that, but I mean, the Synod didn't turn out to be the kind of lion that some people thought it would be. But this document... It's only half time. The interesting right, parts of the Synod time, that right. are always the second half. But this document effectively, I think for a lot of theologians, does seem to be endorsing a very different theological paradigm than that of Veritatis Splendor, which emphasizes above all the sort of preeminence of um, sacred scripture and sacred tradition as a sort of, as, as the guide, li- guide marks and, and source of theological reflection. It's my understanding, and I'm again. I haven't read the motu proprio in question, so this isn't a particular comment on that. Nor, nor do I think this is necessarily or demonstrably true of the mind of Pope Francis. Or I, I I'm simply not expert enough uh, in in the sort of deep tracks of his writing to say that this is him. This is necessarily true of Cardinal Fernandez, although I think it may be. 
it's certainly the impression I've got from several people. But there is a there is a trend, um, and has been a trend. It's been fashionable at different times over the last five or six decades, uh, seven decades maybe, to treat theology as a as a sort of anthropocentric science. Fundamentally, it's not actually about the study of God. It's about the articulation of the div- the potential divinity of humanity, and that is why I think there there is a, a an ongoing and somewhat perennial uh, flourishing of these sort of arguments in favor of interdisciplinary but fundamentally human sciences with theologies that you know why psychology why sociology why you know all this well the real why is because there there is a strain of thought that holds that the study of man is the true study of god that mm-hmm. you know if you if you want to know about god you have to look at people and so the the subjective human reality becomes the correct window uh, you know the prism through which you try to examine the gospel, rather than the other way around, which is that you know your starting point is God. Your starting point is what we know to be the immutable and divinely revealed truth of God and His incarnation in Christ and and everything else. And then that is the prism through which you view the times and the people and the places and the contexts. Um, and so that reversal, I think, is is not a novelty, and and I'm not surprised to to hear it coming back. I think you know. I mean, people are going to roll their eyes, but you know, whatever. I might as well play to type here. I mean, this is all the fault of the Enlightenment and the Freemasons, really. JD, no, um, this is this is we're I'm right no back to car- yeah, we're right back to cogito ergo sum here. You know, man is the measure of all things. I think, therefore, I am what I think. What I perceive is the foundational truth through which all the things should be perceived. And you know, the Enlightenment was not very enlightening. In fact, it is it is one of the great departures into darkness of the human intellect that we've had. Um, it is it it is a you know it is a great big stinking pile that Western culture um, has imparted to the world. It is it's a, it's an intellectual and existential narcissism that that is a cul-de-sac ultimately and is fundamentally self-referential. So, uh, nevertheless, it is it, it is the water it is the intellectual water in which all Western culture in and out of the church um, we've mm-hmm. all been swimming and marinating. For mm-hmm. the last two hundred years, two hundred and fifty years, give or take, so it is not surprising that you know there are schools of thought and movements uh, in theology that that tend to reflect this particularly strongly. I mean, we have to expect that. But you know, one thing I would say uh, in in relation to all of this is, of course, the thing that we can all agree on is that this is an ongoing conversation, and you know. I like to think that the true, the beautiful, the right, the divine will will always win. Um, it, you know, speaking of the Enlightenment, it was um, John Stuart Mill in the Areopagitica who said, "Whoever knew the truth to lose in a free and fair fight?" And I'm confident that in theology, as in all things, the truth will win in a free and fair fight. Yeah, I think that is uh, that is fair. We're we're going to continue to hear more about this because I think what's what what we should pay attention to is there are two phenomena that that are happening in the the um, two two phenomena worth paying attention to in sort of the, the the theology departments of Catholic universities in the United States, and uh, and 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 this will play into one of them to be sure. Um, the first is that theology departments in Catholic universities in the United States are just going away, right? So I mean that that's that's one thing. It's just you know we're we're in this period of extraordinary sort of. Um, uh, intellectual contraction. Yeah, that's right. Diminishment of uh, of of study of the sacred sciences or the humanities um, in in many many things. Um, but uh, the other thing is, um, 
I think this document will be probably taken in the, the in some sort of very influential theology departments in the United States as kind of marching orders. So it's not just about the Pontifical Academy for Theology, but it's about sort of the way the Pope says we should be doing theology. And what that means is we'll see um, a rise in the tendency towards something which is already, I think, emphasized now in, in academia a lot, but a ten- the tendency towards interdisciplinaryism and cross-discipline or cross-disciplinaryism, transdisciplinaryism, as the Pope says. And so we'll see, I think, this same thing that has happened at the JP2, where sort of theology qua theology is replaced with sort of this conversation between certain theological principles and then sociology, or in which people sort of baptize sociological reflection or or anthropological reflection in, into theology. I think we'll see more and more of that sort of passing as theology. And why does that matter what happens in the theology departments of Catholic universities? Because a certain percentage of, you know, priests will be will study at those places or the people who form priests at seminaries will study at those places. And so documents like this can contribute to, without hyperventilating and saying, you know, this is the end of theology as we know it, because, you know, it's... it's no, but it will be the end of theology in many of those places that take it, it up particularly it strongly. Probably be the, it will probably be the thing which allows theology, um, as it's traditionally conceived, to sort of be um, excised in, in many places, I think. No, I, I'd go further. It'll be formal. Um, because the lesson of the JP2 reform in... Uh, the reform of the JP2 in Rome is that if you do this, you don't attract any students of theology. I mean, the last time I checked the JP2, I heard from a faculty member there that they had basically no students who were actually paying tuition. Yeah, what we've heard about the JP2 in Rome is that it's basically in, it's in financial freefall, and the students that it has are students who are basically have sort of propaganda fide scholarships to to study there, um, which is which is which means you know that bishops who are paying footing the bill are not. Um, are not choosing it, and bishops who are not footing the bill are are you know left without a, a so choice I, to some extent. I, I would predict that theology departments that are primarily that first of all are, are disposed to to take such a message and and run hard with it. We're probably going in this direction already anyway. Um, but if they do, then it will just accelerate the process of the closure of theology schools and faculty in schools because. It's not you don't attract any students of theology if what you're offering is not theology. If you say, oh, come study theology. You'll learn about anthropology and sociology and psychology. And it's like, well, what if I want to study theology? Where do I go for that? Do I go to sociology? Is that you know what? Right. I mean, it, it's it's pretty simple that way. Um, so yeah, that will be a that'll be a shame. But it, it, this is the way I take this is, and people have been sort of asking. The way I take this is, this is effectively an affirmation a sort of stated and overt, a constitutional affirmation of the things that the Pope has been demonstrating are his sort of theological methodology over recent years. And that's not only the JP2, but it's also the appointment of Archbishop Paglia, who would, I think, endorse this theological method to be the head of the Pontifical Academy for Life, the appointment of Cardinal Fernandez to be the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. Of the faith. And in a certain way, the emphasis of this on the kind of wisdom that theology, that there's an emphasis in this sort of approach that says like, well, look, the people themselves have a kind of wisdom and we need to rely on that kind of wisdom and we can draw much from it. And there, there's a way in which that's true. Well, there's a way in which that is certainly true. But the, but the, the challenge is, as I see it at least, is that that the wisdom of a sort of people, the sort of vox populi, has to be measured against divine revelation or measured as interpreted by the magisterium, right? So you, it's not that you can't learn something from from talking with people, and it's certainly that you can't learn something about God and the nature of God from from talking with people. It's that that has to be checked against 
what we know is true definitively and meaningfully because God has revealed it to us. And there's, a, I think, a danger in the kind of emphasis of sort of theology by popular acclamation or sort of theology by folk wisdom that you begin to interpret divine revelation in the light of what everybody thinks instead of begin to interpret, test, and evaluate what everybody thinks in light of divine revelation. This is what I was really getting at. It's a question of what measures what. Does the sense that we have or does our pastoral situation, does our difficult situation measure, interpret, and shape the way we understand the gospel? Or do we understand our lives and 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 discover sort of the meaning of our lives, the meaning of our culture, the meaning of our family experiences, uh, according to what God has revealed to us is true about our himself and ourself? And um, there's a danger of, of losing uh, like a paradigm shift away from sort of God being the measure of all things, God's revelation being the measure of all things, a paradigm shift away from that is something that I think can be fraught with fraught with danger for the church. And more importantly, it's just not, in, it's not, it's not important. Um, fundamentally, the only important way to understand, the only true and meaningful way to understand our lives is, uh, is to understand them in light of the incarnation. Fiend. We'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> and this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by Decided Excellence Catholic Media and its online initiative, primesoil.com. You may recall that Decided Excellence is a print magazine company that partners with parishes all over the country to produce their own magazines for the purposes of communication and evangelization in their local community. And you may also recall that I like this. I like it a lot. Yeah, I like, like print media. I love magazines in particular. I love the idea of local Catholic print media in parishes that can reach the entirety of you know the territory of a parish that it's it can be a vehicle for evangelization it can be a vehicle for building community within the parish community it can be a vehicle for evangelization as well as education continuing education in the faith and just because they want us to mention this and so I'm happy to take the lap since partnering with the pillar decided excellence has initiated new magazines and parishes in Nashville Tennessee Pittsburgh um, parts of Florida and Massachusetts and every parish that partners with Decided Excellence has the opportunity to blend their own local content with Decided Excellence's national contributors from Word on Fire, Relevant Radio, Dr. Scott Hahn, The Ascension Press, um, all this and more, which you can find out more about at decidedexcellence.com slash parish. Parishes um, also have access to articles on Decided Excellence's online initiative, primesoil.com. What's primesoil.com? Here's the deal. Inspired by the parable of the sower, primesoil.com is named after the good ground in which the word of God can grow and bear fruit. As an overflow of the decided excellence mission to evangelize, primesoil.com is another good space on the internet where Catholics can visit to nurture their spiritual lives. Decided Excellence has gathered Catholic men and women from all walks of life to share about their experiences of allowing the word of God to bear fruit in their life. New content is released almost every day, and it includes Sunday gospel reflections from a team of clergy writers, catechetical explanations, articles from laity striving to live an authentic Catholic life. And if you like what you see at primesoil.com, you can subscribe for free, which is you know less than you probably pay the pillar to subscribe to us. But wait, there's more. Decided Excellence is a premium sponsor of the National Eucharistic Congress, two thumbs up, taking place in Indianapolis next July. So all of Decided Excellence's magazines nationwide have exclusive content from the National Eucharistic Revival. Plus, Decided Excellence is sponsoring a breakout session at the Eucharistic Congress. And we'll be presenting the Eucharistic Timeline, which is a primesoil.com project. JD, I'd like to just hat tip to you for not making a manure joke when you first mentioned prime soil. Good job. <laughs> the Eucharistic timeline will use sacred scripture, sacred art, and the testimony of the saints to enter into the mystery of the Eucharist. 
The breakout session at the Congress will take a spiritual journey through time to examine the key moments that the God has used to reveal the truth of the body of Christ. So if you have the privilege of attending the National Eucharistic Conference next year, you will probably see us there, and you should consider signing up for the Eucharistic Timeline Breakout Session. You can find out about all this and more at primesoil.com and decidedexcellence.com. Decided Excellence, primesoil.com. They're great. Check them out. Hey, everybody, we are back from commercial. Uh, I am uh, still J.D. Flynn, and I am still with Andy Richter, my pal, uh, Dr. Ed Condon. Uh, Ed, sweater weather has happened rather quickly, has come upon us, and you are donning an excellent sweater, if I may say so myself. Uh, thank you. Now, do we both? We, there are a few sweaters that we both have. Do we both have that sweater? No, we used to, some years ago, we both had the same couple of jumpers and we noticed it because we kept showing up in the same zoom meetings with them so i actually gave mine away <laughs> i'm not kidding no. I, that's not a joke i i wrapped them up i took them up to new jersey and i gave them to my brother <laughs> it was just it too weird that much no it didn't bother me it's just we kept doing it it was like two girls it's like go to the prom in the same dress every zoom meeting that we were both on with someone else it was like are we going to come dressed as each other again because this is just too weird Look, we we have had true or false. We have gone to conferences and on business trips where at breakfast in the hotel in the morning we have been treated as and referred to as a couple. Yeah, by by people who don't know us, like by yes. not by listeners or something like that, but by like waiters no. or something like that. Yes, that happens by people who who do know us who listen to the show. I always find it interesting when we meet people who listen to the show or read the pillar, which I'm on. I mean, it's still very very unusual. My wife says. Uh, my wife says. Um, that you and I Ed, are moderately well known in some very particular settings, um, you know, and that's we're like our own. I don't even know that we're moderately well known. We're a little bit well known in some very particular settings: a USCCB meeting, a seminary, something like that. But one thing I always find sort of darling or lovely is that when we meet someone who listens to the show and they come up to us and then they say, "Now, now, which one are you?" As if we're Alvin Simon and Theodore. You know what I mean? Like, well, I've got this big A on my shirt. What do you? Which one do you think I am? That's never happened to me, although I would find that fantastic. That has happened. That, that happened to us in Florida. Oh, I don't. I didn't remember the which one are you part. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was funny. No, I'd love that. If people came up to me and thought I was you, that would be – I would actually steer right into that very, very No, hard. you would not. You would, would be – you would not. You would not be able to abide it. Uh, no, I'd like to walk a mile in your shoes in public. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> My like, name is like, J.D. Uh, Flynn, and I have some thoughts. <laughs> The difference is, uh, you know, those cartoons that like, um, I can't remember what it's called now. That one comic strip where the kids have the zigzag lines. The kids have the zigzag. Sometimes the comic strip is, sometimes the comic strip, I don't know the name of it. It's like, it just shows the the path of the kids who are playing, um, who are playing and it's like a dotted line to indicate where they've been. And it's like a loopy dotted line, you know, kind of everywhere. I'm afraid this Um, one, no, I don't know. The Family Circus. You know the Family Circus, Ed? I don't. You don't know the Family Circus? No. The newspaper comics that I know are Foxtrot, Calvin and Hobbes, Peanuts, Mother Goose and Grimm. Um, oh, oh. Uh, what's the one that was funny in the decades before we were born and then stopped being Kathy? funny? Was Doonesbury. Kathy? Doonesbury. Oh, Kathy? No, I don't know Kathy. You don't know Kathy? No. Kathy is a single woman of a certain age whose whole comic strip was devoted to her sort of saying like, somebody's got the Mondays. And then Kathy kind of 
it, it can tease that it's her who has the Mondays or like, give me the chocolate and no one gets hurt and other sort of cliches about single womanhood that are actually probably shocked. Know, this didn't come to my attention earlier. In my life. I can't believe you don't know Kathy. Well, a Kathy strip is probably going to be the the cover image for the show, unless it's a family circus image of the kids walking. Because what I was going to say is, you know, the family circus has the kids walking everywhere and you can see the lines. And that's how we are when we're at a meeting or something is you walk in a very straight line to the thing, whereas I sort of amble all, all over the place in a way that stresses you out. It does like if I see a sign, nice. if we're at a USCCB meeting and I see a sign that says bishops only, my only reaction is to think like, oh, what's in there? I'm sure they'll be glad to see me. And then to pop in and it freaks you out every time. It does. I'm I'm a stickler for rules and propriety. I like I like that sort of thing. I like to stay on target. Um, I like economy of movement. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's I got true. in trouble at the uh, – you weren't there, so you would know. But I got in trouble at the synod a few times because – you I'm know, shocked. Uh, every day they'd have different people for the press conference, you know, different synod delegates or whatever for the press conference. And they had a kind of a green room set up for them where they could wait um, before it was time for them to go into the press conference. And so every day I would look to see who was in there. And then I just pop my head in and start saying hello or making small talk and da 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 da. And I'd get kind of out. And then after a couple of days, I noticed they started keeping the door closed. So then, but it was a big glass window. So then I just stand at the glass window like a puppy dog sort of looking in. Um, thinking that they must have forgotten to invite me in before they closed the door, and uh, and it was a, it was an extraordinary irritation to the people who are responsible for keeping me out of stuff. As uncomfortable as this sort of behavior of yours makes me, <laughs> I I I can if I'm able to take a step back from often my my physical and emotional proximity to what you're doing. Uh, I do concede that the, your sort of affable American sheepdog shtick just doesn't play in Rome and the extent to which it doesn't play and it <laughs> know, makes it them makes you- confused and angry as you're doing it. I, it, that is delightful. It is funny. Yeah. They do not, they do not in any way at all know what to make of my kind of, uh, my, uh, um, yeah. Your shtick is completely that. lost on them. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, speaking of that, um, we need to talk at a little bit about, um, Another thing which people are discussing this week, namely an interview in America Magazine, and it's very, very rare that we talk about news from other Catholic media on our podcast. It's very rare that Um, other Catholic media make any news, but yeah, okay. (laughs) I set you up for that one. You did, but you thought I'd be above it, but I'm not. No, I didn't. I knew you'd say it. I knew you'd (laughs) say it, and I knew knew that by setting you up to say it, I wouldn't be the one to say it. Ah, Mm-hmm. Ed, we need to talk about an interview in America Magazine this week with um, uh, that was published a couple of days ago that a lot of people are talking about with Cardinal Christoph Pierre, the Apostolic Nuncio to the United States. The Apostolic Nuncio, of course, is the the, uh, the the bishop, in most cases, who is appointed to sort of represent the Holy See to the civil government of a country and at the same time to be a kind of – he has a dual role. So he has a civil role where he is effectively the Holy See's diplomat to a country and then he is also the Pope's man on the ground in a particular country in order to sort of be a liaison between bishops and the various dicasteries of the Holy See. And he also um, helps, he has a particular role in the selection process of bishops and just kind of uh, serves as sort of a, the Vatican's ecclesiastical representative in a particular region. So civil diplomat and then sort of ecclesiastical liaison. Yes. Um and so Archbishop Cardinal Christophe Pierre, uh, not a pillar reader, 
gave oh, in, in pillar reader but not a not a fan pillar reader but i don't think probably a subscriber probably not a listener to this show either no <laughs> anyway archbishop pierre cardinal pierre i keep saying that because he just became a cardinal gave an interview in america magazine that a lot of people are talking about and um it was kind of uh, about his experience of the church in the united states and um uh he, he talked about a lot of things but one of the things that i was um one of the things that is getting a lot of pushback and that I wondered sort of about this is uh, he says uh, he's talking about a need in contemporary world that the church and society have changed in the contemporary world and the transmission of the faith is not done through the cultures in the past, which I think is true, um, that we don't have sort of a just effusive Catholic culture, which people absorb by osmosis or whatever. So we have to provide new opportunities and ways for people to have a personal encounter with Christ through a church that is fitting to a new society, a new way of, we need a new way of being Catholic. This demands a readjustment of the pastoral approach, which is very difficult to do because people are, as we all are, set in our views and our ways of preaching and organizing. And he says this, I find it very interesting. This is especially true in the United States, where we have a very organized church, which has worked beautifully for many years. Over 200 years, we have built fantastic church schools, hospitals, parishes, and churches, but almost nobody comes to church anymore. So Pope Francis said, go out of the church, but we still remain in the church. Why? I was surprised to hear, of all the things that Cardinal Pierre said, and he talked about, you know, difficulties that the U.S. bishops have sort of understanding Pope Francis and other challenges that they face, but the the thing that I found really hard to wrap my head around is this characterization of sort of American Catholics relative to their counterparts around the world as being sort of remaining within the church or as if sort of evangelical dynamism is not uh, is lacking in the American church and 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 certainly I think there's room for lots of criticism of of the church in the United States I think there's lots of criticism for our uh, room for criticism of our sort of efforts towards evangelization but I was surprised by this characterization that sort of we remain in the church where evangelization takes place outside the church because it seemed to be comparative to other cultures and I wonder how you take it Ed, or what your thoughts are I'm not in a position to make a, a comparative analysis uh, with other cultures because um, I barely understand American culture. But and I am, you know, in the in the sort of great scope of my life, I, I you know, I, I'm still relatively new and in the getting to know phase of of my engagement with American Catholicism as an adult. Um, but my impression certainly doesn't tally with that. I. I think if anything, American Catholics are much more comfortable discussing their faith, much more comfortable sharing their faith. Uh, to put it in in terms that would make British toes curl in many circumstances, they are, they are much more comfortable talking about Jesus and telling people about Jesus and how they got to know Jesus and what they should and that they should too should get to know Jesus. You know that the the concept of discussing the good news, the gospel, is is something that I think. It's been my impression American Catholics are more comfortable doing than uh, other other Catholics I have encountered in my life. So I was surprised to this. I will, on the other hand, say there is, a, I think, a very real generational divide uh, that I have seen in in American diocesan ministry. It's not it's not universal. It's not hard and fast, but it is noticeable and has been noticeable to me in places between those who still primarily rely upon what I think you could call a a pastoral paradigm of sacramentalization, of sacramentality, of ministry to the faithful that is primarily takes place in the church building, in the context of the parish, and that the function of the the priest's job, the pastor's job, is to 
round up his flock from the territory, get them in the building, and give them the sacraments. That that's his primary job. Kids need to be baptized. The young couples need to get married. The old people need to get buried. And everybody should you go. You see, to conf- this is the prevailing approach to pastoral ministry in the United States. Because I, 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 no, no, I didn't say okay. I see it as the prevailing. I said this. I see this as one side of a generational divide. I oh, I yeah, sure. And then you have another side, which is very much a sort of no, no. We got to go out. We got to be out there. We got to be on the streets. And everybody's got their own different flavor of what it's like to be on the streets. For some people, it's you know, big cool processions where everybody's wearing Magnum PI shades and carrying a giant Marian statue. Um, for other people, it's street evangelization, like literally going up to people two by two and talking to them. Some people, it's sort of, you know, pop rock catechesis on stages and, you know, whatever it is. But I've seen an absolute lot of that. So I I found it very surprising to read Cardinal Pierre's assessment, not because I didn't recognize what he said in some parts of American Catholic life, but I would describe it as at best half a view of American Catholicism, probably a view only of a of a minority and a shrinking minority that of of how yeah American- I think that institutionalist paradigm. Look, I think there's a whole there's a spot. What I don't don't think you're accounting for is a swath of sort of pa- the approach of, to pastoral ministry between the two, which is sort of um the approach of sort of mediocrity, like um we've built it and they'll come, which says neither I I need to go out and get everybody in my territory into the building and sacramentalize them, or we need to sort of be evangelizing. I think. You cannot disregard the sort of big beige middle on this sort of approaches to pastoral paradigm, which says like, well, I'm here and I'll, you know, I, I, I basically sort of um, the, the sort of beige laziness that has infected, I think, suburban parishes in some parts of this country and maybe with, with increasing less frequency, but which still exists. You, you can't ignore that. But I think you're right that um, it is only it is not the sort of fundamental paradigm of the church in the United States to have this predominantly institutionalist model, which just says, you know, we will we are, we have this sense in which we'll go out and sacramentalize the people who live in our territorial parish, and that's the whole of our job. I, sure, I, I but I mean, I, I didn't mean to ignore the reality of a of a swath of beige, but I I don't think Cardinal Pierre or or I would would characterize the majority or the overriding paradigm of American Catholicism or pastoral ministry to be effectively lazy indifference. I, no, n- nor would I. I, I, don't, I, I guess I, I just say I don't recognize this as a paradigm. That's just, you know. Well, I certainly see a stripe of that. Sure, and but I don't think it's representative sort of, of a mentality. Sort of in the, it's it's a disposition. Or, or 1990s kind of um, ha- had to make a clay chalice and patent before their first communion sort of knows what I'm talking about, sort of beige institutional Catholicism, which is neither one. I never the other. had to do that. I know, but you're not even American. I made my first communion in the United States. Okay, well, then um, you. I did have, have to make a felt banner. They, but, they did have okay, us do that. Yeah, that kind of, that kind of thing. Okay. I, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think what I think it ignores more than anything. You sort of talked about it from the perspective of a of of clerical ministry, but I think this also just ignores doesn't see or didn't take into account or didn't, to my surprise, sort of recognize what seems to me to be ex- the extraordinary lay entrepreneurship in the church in the United States, for, for better or for worse. But one can't ignore that there is a kind of lay entrepreneurial apostolic identity among a large swath of American of practicing American Catholics that I don't think exists anywhere else, that I've never seen quite in quite the same way anywhere in the world. I think that's true. Uh, well, reading... 
Um, Cardinal Pierre's interview, uh, I, I was struck by his – it's funny because he was sort of criticizing the church in the United States um, and, and the bishops of the United States and, and, and so on. But he seemed to be doing so – I mean, and again, I, I don't want to – I don't think that this interview represents the whole of his experience or even the whole of his thought on these things. I mean, like – like like many interviews you read, this was this was more this was more context and things written around what he said than actual him speaking. There were some big lengthy quotes, but mostly you know he's he's quoted in bits. So I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that you know this is this is his unabridged thought on the subject. But at least in the presentation of it, it's a remarkably clericalist and institutionalist view of the church that is presented. You know, he talks about you know. The problem with American Catholicism today is that, you know, we're to change the epoch and people feel unsettled and society, you know, feels unsettled. And that's why you see young priests in cassocks. And like, I don't know that mm-hmm. the vision I have of young American Catholicism is priests in cassocks. That's, that's not, I don't think it's, and you no, know, I don't but, think it's extraneous to the vision of young no, American. No, it's not extraneous, but, but my point is his young rep- priests in cassocks who I know are doing it because they want to sort of reach back. They all are sure. saying like, no, Trent is the paradigm, paradigm yeah, yeah, of Christian. Yeah. I mean, it's part of it, but I, my point is that his reference points are all clerical or institutionalists. You know? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. you know, it's priests and Catholics. It's, well, where are right. all the religious sisters who used to staff hospitals and teach class and Catholic well, So you schools? think there's a certain naivete or a certain just failure to see the kind of lay apostolic initiative which characterizes American Catholicism? I don't, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to accuse Cardinal Pierre of either naivete or a lack of familiarity with us, because again, I don't know that this rep- this interview represents the whole of his experience or his thought on the matter. But what I found striking about the presentation of it in this is that the reference points are all clerical yeah, and institutional. And I found that mm-hmm. curious that in a country where there is, as you say, all of this lay-led dynamism in different corners on, you know, and you can you can pick your liturgical, theological, ecclesiological flavor, and there's something for you. Uh, it, it seems strange to me that his reference points were all to do with religious sisters and young priests. And That's a very good point. Yeah, there's a there's a way in which the conversations that I find most sort of engaging in, in the church today are about, not about, um, to some extent about renewing institution, but to another extent, you know, you just see things we've talked about, some of the challenges of this as well, and the way in which canon law sort of isn't caught up for it, but the way in which you see sort of new non-institutionally driven um, projects. This um, is an interview and, about institutions. It was an right. interview about the Bishop's Conference. It's an interview about hospitals but and schools. But it didn't schools. have to be. That's that's, no, but that's that, the but vision that, of Archbishop Pierre's, effectively. Well, that's what I'm saying, is th- those are all of his reference points, is they're all hierarchical yeah. and, and institutional. And I just Given the subject of the interview and synodality and, and the parasitic document in Latin America and this whole new way, as Cardinal Pierre has adopted, uh, of being church, I, I was surprised that there wasn't more discussion of lay evangelization, lay dynamism. Here's lay a really good example of that. I love what you're saying. Asked where he sees signs of hope in the church in the United States today, the Cardinal said, now – I think the pat answer, by the way, like a, the baseline answer, let's say sort of games above replacement, games below replacement, you know, using a sabermetrics reference, the, the replacement level player in the Episcopate would say to that question, whether or not he's thinking at all or just 
funny it is, families, the dynamic of families, the vitality of families, moms and dads working hard to raise their kids in the, fa- in the faith. That is the baseline answer. It's safe. It's the sort of, it's, it's, it's you know, the, the 50 words that won't get in trouble. You can't go wrong. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So if that's the baseline answer, here's this, here's Pierce, which I think is to your point. I think we cannot separate the good things and the bad. I think the church is like that. We cannot say there are bishops who are on the left and ones who are on the right. This is a false analysis. I say that because I know the bishops. They're all struggling. They're all struggling in their own corner. They're all good people. Their desire is to evangelize. Some feel one way, some another way. They're overwhelmed by big problems. They have the problem of the abuse. And now the lawyers are emptying the money from their dioceses. Many are in bankruptcy. So they're struggling. It's not easy for them. On the other hand, it really gets I think to all the heart of, of American Catholic life, doesn't it? On <laughs> the other hand, I think all of them in some way feel they have to evangelize, but they don't always find the ways to do so. And often they're surrounded by people who are just saying, do this, do that. Ironic coming so, from a Vatican the, official, but okay. The only reference, uh, so where do you see signs of hope in the church? Here's uh, 200 words about bishops. The only reference to people who are not bishops are blood-sucking lawyers or bossy laity saying, do this, do that. Um, you know, it is, it is but an But again, institutional related. figures, chancery officers, lay people figures. exist in that they work in chanceries. That's right. That's, the actual faithful are are sort of a distant object of evangelization. Well, They're not protagonists in the life of the American church whatsoever in this interview, which I found yeah, so just Pierre mystifying. Believes, again, Pierre believes the bishops need to pause, stop, and reflect together. Don't only have meetings about administration. Listen to one another. Look at the reality. Pray together, discern, and decide. So synodality in this vision is the synodality of the Episcopate. I wish we could have more of that kind of synodality in Rome. I know that's right. <laughs> that's it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's in a certain way. It, 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 in a certain way, it's um, Cardinal Pierre's vision of synodality is exactly the kind of vision of synodality I would like to see practiced at the Synod of Bishops. I wish his vision for American Catholicism was a little more of the of the melting pot that we've got over in Rome. Rome. Well, here's the interesting thing: if if Cardinal Burke had said. You know, what do you think? Of, what are the signs of hope you say in the church? And all he had said is, um, uh, bishops, well, I think the bishops on the left and the bishops on the right, and this divide yeah. isn't fair. And, this and then analysis. synodality. And then what does synodality mean? Bishops need to pray together and discern. I mean, he would have been lit up as a as clericalist. Clericalism is not limited to sort of the theological right or the theological left. It is a field of vision. Oh yeah, yeah. Okie dokie. That was a good conversation. Yeah, that was a good conversation. Uh, you know what I liked about this conversation? That it was sponsored by Decided Excellence Catholic Media. That's exactly what I was going to say. And their online initiative, primesoil.com. Decided Hot Excellence Catholic Media. And their online initiative, primesoil.com. And the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and that NJD production. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. My podcasting partner, co-founder, and I think he had some very good insights today is Ed Condon. And we'll be back next week. But before we go, Ed, we have some, uh, we have an event announcement. We have something to share with you. We do. We are, we are, uh, um, like Cardinal Christophe Pierre, we really can't go five minutes without thinking about or talking about the USCCB. And uh, there is, of course, the USCCB autumn, or do they call it fall plenary assembly? Uh, I think they might now call it the November plenary assembly. Fine. The, it, w- there's an assembly and it's plenary and it's the USCCB and it happens in Baltimore. We're going to the USCCB year. meeting in Baltimore in two weeks. We are. And while we are there, as has become our custom, we will be doing a live show, a Baltimore live show. A Baltimore show. event, a happening. 
a happening. It will be, I hope, well attended. Uh, well, that'll depend on you, podcast listeners. It'll be well attended if you come. Ed, tell them where it is and what time. Uh, we are going to be kicking off at 7 p.m. at Todd Connor's Bar. Link and address in the show notes. It's exactly the same place as we had it last what year. Date? We had such a great team. We're going to do it again. This is the evening of Wednesday, the 15th of November. More details to follow. It's going to be great. More details to follow. November 15th, Todd Connor's Bar, 7 o'clock. It'll be great. It really will be. And I have some uh, horrible person stickers that I'll be giving away. Nice. Yeah, great. Okay, we'll see you there. 